From ARUP Laboratories on the campus of the University of Utah, welcome to the LabMind Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brian Jackson. Today is Tuesday, the 17th of August, 2021, and I'm pleased to have as our guest on LabMind today, Dennis Strank. Dennis is a PA, a pathologist assistant at Wisconsin Diagnostic Laboratories, where he's been since 2018. But he's actually worked in this field for much longer than that. He was a PA at Ameripath for a good 18 years. And the way Dennis and I met was that he is a fellow podcaster. He's the host of the People of Pathology podcast. At last count, he's up to at least 73 interviews with pathologists, trainees, and others. It's a wide range of backgrounds, perspectives, topics, professional areas of focus. So I encourage you to check this out. The website is peopleofpathology.podbean.com, but I find it on my iPhone with Apple Podcasts, and you can find it on other podcast platforms as well. So Dennis Strank, welcome to LabMind. Thank you. I'm honored to be here today. So you've been in pathology for at least a couple decades here, working in multiple laboratories with multiple people in this field, whereas you've been doing podcasting much more recently, within the last two years. So I'm curious, are there insights about the professional pathology that you have gained these last couple of years that you hadn't picked up in all of those decades before that working in the field? Yeah, there are a few. First, you know, I'm not a pathologist. I didn't go to medical school. I don't know anything about it. But I always thought that you just went to college and then went right to medical school and then went right to residency and you came out and you were a pathologist or whatever specialty you happen to go into. What I've found is that's not always the case. In fact, with the people that I've spoken with, it's usually not the case. There are a lot of things that happen in between those stages. I'd like to say it's not always a straight line. People do different things in between. If you didn't match into the program that you wanted to, you might do something else while you try again. Some people don't get into medical school the first time or the second time or the third time. So they might go get a master's degree, all these other things. And that's true not only of pathologists, it's true of PAs. I found it true of clinical laboratory scientists, any profession within the lab. There's no typical route is what I found. So that's one of the big ones. And then one of the other ones, and I didn't really notice it in the places where I've worked, but there are lab shortages, the shortages of staff, of pathologists, even forensic pathologists. That's something I've really found out about how short we are of forensic pathologists. There's been so many other things that I've learned. And then going into this past year with COVID, I've learned about testing. There are regulatory aspects to starting a test. You don't just buy a test and take it out of the box and start using it. There are things you have to do. And these are all things I didn't know. I don't know much about the clinical aspect of pathology, being a PA, I'm in the anatomic path. So all of these things I'm learning about from the people that I've had on the podcast, and it's been great. I learned so much from all these people in the past year and a half. The first point you made is an important one. You talk about career paths not being linear. From where I sit, it feels like there's a norm that a career track should be linear and certainly a quote-unquote professional career track like in, you know, in healthcare that you're supposed to do things in order and there is a series of training events and everything else. Of the more than 70 people you've interviewed, what fraction would you say had a nicely, cleanly linear pathway versus some off-ramps and on-ramps along the way? Any intuition on that? Oh, it's probably... I would say a quarter of them. 
you know, I'm trying to highlight these different careers in pathology and laboratory medicine, and I'm trying to reach people who might be interested in them. And what if those people, they think like I did, I came out of college and I didn't know what I wanted to do with myself. And I thought that was unusual. I'm trying to reach those people to go, that's not unusual. That's actually pretty common. And you can still go into these careers and do very well in them, having a non-linear path, like you said. So you're saying a fourth of your interviewees have had a cleanly linear path? That's a guess, but yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's not a lot. So most haven't. It feels like we really need to normalize that. Those of us who have, you know, teenagers at home or kids in their early 20s that are really stressing about, you know, what am I going to do with my life? These cultural ideas that you're supposed to fit into a box and most young people don't fit into a box. Right. Yeah. And that's one of the things I'm trying to highlight now. It's kind of a more recent realization that I've come to is this is important for people to know. And maybe some other reason why people don't go into these lab careers is because they think they miss their opportunity. And I'm trying to show that it's cliche, but it's never too late. About maybe 15 years ago, I was invited to give a talk at a small conference in Vermont. I stopped on my drive at this little town in southwestern Vermont that has a Grandma Moses Museum. It's like the basement of the town hall. That's where Grandma Moses had lived. And so this tiny little museum actually has one of the world's best collections of Grandma Moses folk art. It's always been an inspiration to me that you can you know, start a world-class career at age 70. I don't know if that's true for everyone, but she clearly pulled it off. And so I've always held that out in my mind as, you know, it's never too late. Sure. I mean, you hear that about some musicians as well, starting a career later in life and artists and things like that. And yet we idolize the child prodigies, the Mozarts or the 12-year-old world-class violinists or whatever, as if that's the only way to go. I have heard that's correct, that a lot of professional musicians actually picked up their instrument relatively late in the game. Okay, let's talk stereotypes for a minute. There are a lot of strong stereotypes out there about pathologists. And I'm assuming you're familiar with the joke about how do you tell if a pathologist is extroverted? I'm not. You heard that one? I'm not. No, I haven't. Okay. So the extroverted pathologist is someone who, when they speak with you, they're looking at your shoes rather than their own shoes. <laughs> okay. Okay. So my question for you is, how true is this? In my experience, it's not true. First of all, in just in my own career as a pathologist assistant, I've worked with a lot of pathologists. Very few of them, I would say, are introverted. In fact, a lot of them are the most outgoing people I've ever met. As far as the podcast, it's the same kind of thing. There are some that are maybe introverted, but for the most part, no, they're very easy to speak with. They're very open about their career path or how they got to where they are and the things that they've done. Thinking about this question, okay, maybe I'm biased because probably the introverted pathologist wouldn't want to come on and do a podcast. That could be a possibility. But in my experience, that's just not what I've seen at all. So let me ask about an even stronger stereotype out there, which is the forensic pathologist, because you've, you've interviewed a number of folks in forensics. During the pandemic, my family and I have really gotten into European and British crime dramas on Netflix. And I'm telling you, the forensic pathologists on these shows are strange ducks. Yeah, that's true. So that's the stereotype. Tell me about the forensic pathologists that you've interviewed. They will all have very strong opinions about the way they are portrayed on TV. I've asked them about that specific thing, and they point out all these inconsistencies with what you see on TV, you know, autopsy rooms are well lit. 
there's not one single light bulb hanging from the ceiling, you know, <laughs> you know, yeah. forensic pathologists don't hang out in the basement all the time by themselves. That just doesn't happen. Like I said, pathologists in my experience are not introverted forensic pathologists. The ones that I've spoken to are even less. So they're some of the most friendly people. I enjoy talking with them. They're super nice. They're really funny. Some of them television shows have done a disservice to forensic pathology for sure. I hope that isn't contributing to the shortage out there, because as you point out, there really is a need for more forensic pathologists. Do you have any you know, clues as to why there's a shortage out there? I worry about that if it's the way they're portrayed on TV. I'm not sure. But from what I have heard, I think for the most part, they're government employees. And so then they're paid differently than your typical hospital pathologist would be, which might deter some people from going into that field. You know, maybe it is because of TV, because of the way that that field is portrayed and it's exciting and glamorous and you're, you know, solving crimes and running around the city dressed up with high heels and whatever. And it's not that way. And I think when people come to realize that maybe they were looking for that glamour that isn't there, maybe I'm guessing at that respect, but that might be part of it too. So this is a totally unfair question and I'll just label it that way. And you're free to answer this, you know, any direction you want to go, but do you have any favorite interviews of the last... 70 plus that you've done? Of course, it was the one that I did with you. <laughs> no, I was going to say that that's, <laughs> that's off limits. But other than that, any favorites that sort of jump out as particularly you know, interesting or unusual? I can't pick one or even a handful of favorites. I mean, there's something that I like about every single episode. It might be the conversation was particularly interesting. Like I said, even with the one with you, I mean, we talked about some ethical aspects of medicine and pathology that I'd never talked about before. And they, they're interesting things to think about. And when I do things like that, you know, Dr. Neil Thies was another one, Dr. Syed Hoda was another one. And they're just like these sort of philosophical aspects of them. And you have the conversation and, you know, and then I listen to it as I'm editing and think about that. And that's really interesting. And it's something I've never thought about before. And I hope other people pick up on that and maybe think of it as well. And maybe they do and maybe they don't. But those are some of the ones that I like a lot. There's a few others, Dr. Barbara Jean Magnani. So when I started the podcast, she's a pathologist, toxicologist. She's an author. She's written a few books now. I just read her book, The Queen of All Poisons. And I thought, wow, you know, it'd be really great to get someone like this on the show, to have her on the show. That'd be great. And eventually I did twice. We talked about the first book and then just recently talked about the second book. And now we communicate, we email, sometimes we text from time to time. And it's just like to think about where that started and we're friends now, things like that. And I've developed relationships with some of the people that I've had on the podcast that I, I never would have before without that. So it's become, I guess, kind of a networking tool for me. So those are special ones. Those are some favorites. You could point out each one of the 73, and I could tell you the thing that was my favorite about that. I mean, we could do that all day. Yeah, for me, looking over the list of interviews you've done, and I've listened to a few of them, but not all of them, but it just strikes me it's an incredible range yeah. of topics, of subspecialties, of perspectives. You know, I have to say that really is the primary thing that attracted me into pathology in the first place in terms of my own career was just realizing how broad this was. It really felt appealing to me that touching all areas of healthcare in lots of different ways and interacting with the science in lots of different ways. It seems like you've captured a lot of that diversity in the folks you've chosen to interview. Yeah, see, that's one of the things I try to do 
that's a conscious effort, I think, because I'm trying to cover as many aspects of lab medicine and pathology that I can. And then I like to find where those areas kind of intersect with something else. So those are a lot of the forensic type interviews, you know, forensic artists, the forensic anthropology, those type of things where forensic science or pathology intersects with something else. And I like to find those because I feel like I had different interests when I was in college and maybe other people have different interests as well. And they think, well, I have all these things and they don't fit in one box. You can make your own box. You can combine two or three things together and those fields are out there. They're available or you can create one. I had a, a forensic geophysicist, which is something I'd never heard about, but he was a super funny guy. And we had such a great conversation that I've had a lot of people tell me that's one of their favorites because it was so obscure, but he did the same kind of thing. It's forensic science mixed with, I don't want to say geology because he wouldn't like that, but it kind of mixed with geology. One of my own most recent interviews was our outgoing CEO here at RP, who's a hematopathologist. But what I didn't realize until we got into the interview was that what had brought her into pathology was forensic art history. She'd been an art student in Paris and ended up getting into like the chemistry of the paints. And that sort of led her down into a science path and ultimately into pathology. So th these intersections are all over the place. I don't know that we always recognize them. Okay, let me ask you a bit about media. So this is another personal interest of mine. So let me introduce this by just observing that within biomedicine and certainly within academic medicine, the respectable way to get your ideas across would either be in the form of journal articles or speaking at a professional conference. And those are sort of the two things that you get promoted for in an academic medical center and the two communication media that sort of have respect. But over the last 20 years, there's a lot of other kinds of media that have become widespread, whether it's blogging or you know, podcasting that we're doing right now or video. There are some doctors out there that have YouTube series. So I want to just get your thoughts on emerging alternative, different forms of media for getting ideas across. Do you think these kinds of things are gaining respect in the healthcare world? Do you think they're slow to catch on? Do you see a future there? Or do you think we're all going to revert to journal articles and conference talks in the future? Is this just a fad? I mean, what are your general thoughts on ways to get ideas across? I mean, I think journal articles and formal talks, like you mentioned, will always be kind of the major way to communicate. But, you know, like you said, YouTube, there are several fairly popular pathologists that have YouTube channels. Instagram is fairly popular when it comes to pathology. It's still sort of fringe, I think. I don't know really anything about TikTok, so I'm not sure about that one. But Twitter is very popular. But I think part of it being slow to catch on is people have sort of a misunderstanding of HIPAA. And a lot of organizations or facilities have this, or did anyway, that you couldn't share any information about any case publicly. So then eventually a couple of pathologists wrote journal articles about how these are the things you can share. This is the way you can do it safely and respectfully, and you can do it in a way to educate the public. So that's been slowly happening. I spoke to a internal medicine doctor and she does social media specifically for doctors. And she said that there's been this doctors traditionally were told not to do these kind of things, not to share information publicly and to be very sort of private about it and not sort of outgoing in that way. And she thinks that needs to change. And I think that part of the reason why 
maybe pathology doesn't get the respect that it should is that we're kind of behind in that respect. We don't have people out there or as many people out there talking about our field, talking about our professions, the different ones that we have. That's kind of my opinion about it. As far as podcasts, yeah, I think it's catching on. Some of the major professional organizations, ASCP, CAP, they've got their own podcast now, but I think it's still going to be minor compared to your traditional ways. What can you get out of a podcast that you don't get out of written form or say a conference presentation? For me, one of the big advantages of podcasts is that you can listen to them while you're doing something else, which has always been the appeal for me. You know, I'm a runner, so I listen to podcasts while I run. I mean, I suppose you could try, but you can't really read a journal article while you're running or driving. It's a different atmosphere, I think, when it's a conversation. And especially the way that I do it, you know, we're not talking about what's the latest research in whatever kind of cancer. I'm talking about the specific person. It's a lighter kind of atmosphere. You know, you can write interview style like that, but I think it's different when you can hear the person talk, you can hear the inflection in your voice if they happen to laugh or there's a pause while they think about something. I've had people who felt very strongly about certain things and you could hear it in their voice. And so I think that's important. And you would miss that if it was just written. What do you sense that your interviewees are getting out of this? Why do people say yes to you when you ask them for an interview? I think it's easier than doing a formal presentation. They don't have to prepare a PowerPoint slide deck. I provide them with the questions that I'm going to ask them. So basically I'm doing all the work or most of the work. All they have to do is come on and talk to me about themselves for 30 to 45 minutes. And I feel like that appeals to people, especially when you're in a field where you feel like the general public doesn't know who you are. I think that's appealing to come and talk about the things that you've done. A lot of people I've noticed as we're talking seem very appreciative of the fact that somebody is interested in the things that they've done. Maybe you don't get a lot of that. And I can understand that being you know, a pathologist assistant. And there aren't a lot of people that want to hear about all of the organs that I cut up yesterday, aside from probably my wife, <laughs> just because she has to. So that's part of it. They like to hear that somebody is listening and is interested in them. And I try very hard with the preparation that I do to kind of portray that. So let me pivot again and ask you some questions about the profession, the practice of pathology. I've heard some people say that pathology hasn't changed a whole lot in the last hundred years. But the fact that pathologists are still looking at microscope slides stained with you know, hematoxylin and eosin, which I don't know how long that's been around, 150 years. It's a fairly old technology. So the fact that that's still sort of the centerpiece of pathology practice is presented as evidence that that's been a fairly stable field. In a lot of your interviews, you talk about emerging technologies, about new ways of investigating tissues or pathophysiology or whatever. I mean, certainly if you look at my experience the past 20 years, just looking at immunohistochemistry and then molecular testing, that has expanded dramatically as well. So that's one area. Like you said, yeah, the basic kind of general H&E stain slide, yeah, that hasn't changed much, but there's all these other areas that are emerging that I think will change pathology in probably the not too distant future. And digital pathology, for example, is one digital and computational pathology, just the promise of those things. And some of the research that's been done in those areas about what these machines could do is amazing, but it's not in widespread use yet. And there's still the cost factor when it comes to that. And the fact that you're kind of adding a step to the process 
people compare it to radiology all the time where it eliminated film and this wouldn't eliminate the glass slide. So there's that aspect. But like you said, I try to cover some of the new emerging technologies on the podcast. First of all, I find them interesting. And I think that eventually these will be in widespread use. And again, maybe there's someone who is interested in that, that wonders, you know, where can I do this as a job, as a profession in the future? And maybe you can do that in pathology by the time you finish your schooling and whatever training you need to do, pathology will be ready for you. The rate of change in pathology is accelerating. And I think there's going to be a drastic shift in the not too distant future. So these shifts, these you know, technologic changes can be seen as either threats or opportunities, depending on where you're sitting. Three that come to mind for me that I think you've talked about with some of your guests, the quote unquote liquid biopsy, this idea that you could run nucleic acid testing on blood that might replace need for tissue biopsies in some cases. Another one I don't actually hear a lot about in the pathology world, but theoretically, you could have interventional radiologists sticking long catheters into the body with a microscope on the tip and maybe getting into, quote unquote, our turf. Or the example that you just raised, computational pathology, even if you've got a glass slide with tissue on it, could be an AI bot that's doing the initial read of that rather than a human. In your interviews, do you mostly encounter guests who see these things as opportunities they're excited about, or do you sometimes get a sense that there's some threat there? It's almost always they view it as an opportunity, but that might be because maybe that's the reason why I wanted to talk with them. This is the field or the specialty that they're in, so of course they're going to be excited about it. So that might be a little bit biased, but of the things that you mentioned, I mean, yeah, liquid biopsy, that scares me a little bit. I mean, that's taking away someone handling the tissue, which is me. But at the same time, with all these technologies, you're going to need people that know how to run these machines, how to maintain the machines and things like that. You still will have the need to process tissue, whether it's to process it, to feed it into one of these machines. Or in addition to that, as far as the AI and the computational pathology, I read somewhere and I can never remember where it was, but someone said that instead of calling it artificial intelligence, you should call it augmented intelligence. You still have to have a pathologist there who's then going to use these additional functions that the AI will provide for them to do a faster, a more efficient job and to give more information on these cases. So there still is a need for people. I wanted to mention, there's a great book that I've read. It deals with this area. It's called Deep Medicine. I don't know if you've heard of this, but there's a section in it and he deals with kind of pathology and radiology together as far as what these new technologies would mean. And the conclusion that they come to is sort of a hybrid of the two. So it's not two separate specialties. It's kind of together. The way it's presented in the book, it makes a lot of sense. Do you remember who wrote that? I want to say Eric Topol or Topol. I'm not sure how you say his name. Okay. That would make sense. He does a lot of futurism. Yeah, that's the guy. Writing. Okay, closing question. I'm just guessing that from time to time, you encounter students, young people. Back to the beginning of our conversation, we were talking about how when you're in your 20s or 30s, you may or may not know where you want to go in life. So I'm just guessing that when people find out that you work in pathology, that you occasionally field questions about this as a career track. What would you tell a young person these days about pathology as a career track? I mean, I love the job that I do. I tell people I get to see interesting things every single day, and not many people can say that. And then talking to other people in other areas of the lab, it's the same. There are so many commonalities between a PA and 
a cytotech, between a PA and a clinical laboratory scientist. Very different jobs, but we all have the same passion for it. And so I think for any student, if you're interested in these careers, shadowing is always a I mean, maybe not right now, but is a good option. Get yourself in there, take a look at these areas and see. I've talked to a lot of people that when they finally got into a lab, they immediately knew this was the place for them. This doesn't happen to me a lot. It has sometimes, but I don't get a lot of questions from students. But some of the people that I have interviewed, people have reached out to them because they've heard them on the podcast and asked them for career advice. For me, is extremely rewarding. And then, you know, they'll email me and say, you know, this student reached out to me because they heard me on your podcast and they asked for career advice to have that kind of, and it's indirect, but have that sort of indirect impact. That's what I'm trying to do. That's a lot of, I want to highlight these fields and I want to inspire people to look at them. It happens a little bit and I'm trying to do a lot more of that. Well, you're doing a great thing. So thank you for your contributions to the profession. Dennis Strank, thank you so much for being on LabMind today. Thank you, Dr. Jackson. I really enjoyed being here. LabMind is sponsored by ARUP Laboratories, a not-for-profit enterprise of the University of Utah and its Department of Pathology. Our producer is Sheree Peterson with audio engineering by Claudia Escobar. You can find other LabMind episodes at arup.utah.edu, along with an extensive video lecture library providing free CME and CE credits for medical and laboratory professionals. You can also subscribe to LabMind on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your other favorite podcast app. If If you do access it on an app, I would encourage you to leave a rating and review in order to help others find the podcast.